the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Delighted that you take the time to tune in and uh, hopefully call with your Bible questions, but just really privileged and honored that you take the time to listen to the program. Uh, we're here to take your questions, and, and uh, we'll do whatever we can to help you find the answers. 340-9585 is our phone number if you're here in the San Antonio area. 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send the questions directly to us via our app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. 340-9585. We don't really have anything going on on Tuesday, so we'll get right to some questions. Uh, I'm going to start with a question that was sent in today. It's a really, really great question. The problem is I could spend um, literally the entire hour of the program answering the question. It's from our email inbox uh, from Adam. Oh, well, let's do this first. Instead of that, we got a phone call just come in rather than keep him holding or her holding. Uh, Let's go to line one and talk with Timothy. Thanks for calling, Timothy. You're on the air. Uh, good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Thanks for the, uh, taking the phone call. have a real quick question about um, taking the Lord's Supper and whether or not uh, what form of reconciliation, if any, is required there. I know that we're, we're to pre- uh, prepare ourselves or judge ourselves worthy. Um, I think it's in um, Second Peter that's discussed, but I could be mistaken there. But um, just what are the preparations for taking uh, the Lord's Supper and if we have a, um, a circumstance in our lives where we're not necessarily reconciled, that there has been forgiveness, uh, what that might affect us? Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Timothy. I can do that. Uh, you know, I think the only preparation Paul talks about uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, he talks about some have, have taken uh, communion unworthily and, and some are sick and some have even died. Um um, uh, the, 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 the reconciliation that's necessary isn't necessarily between people um, unless the Lord leads, but it's reconciliation to talk about between us and God, uh, confessing our sins, um, repenting of anything that's standing between us and the Lord. And the whole idea of preparing your heart or or getting ready spiritually to come to the table of the Lord is just to make sure that you're right with God. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us to examine our hearts daily. How much more when we're coming to the table of the Lord? Now, there there may be times when there's a situation where 
you're holding unforgiveness towards somebody and they're not there with you, but you can purpose in your heart to take care of that. Lord, I'm going to deal with this. I want to get this out of my my, my way with you. I, I want to be able to walk with you unencumbered. So forgive me, Lord. Uh, that That prepares your heart to take communion. You just have to follow up. Uh, if that's the case, but but almost exclusively, Timothy, um, we're just talking here about making sure your heart is right be God in, with God. Inspect your heart. Let the Holy Spirit sort of do some cleansing. Um, we allow before communion. We do the first communion on the first Sunday of every month here at Calvary Chapel, and um, I, I always give people the time while the communion elements are being passed out to ensure uh, that their hearts are right with God. And that's just settling all accounts, making sure that there's nothing that is interrupting your ability to hear the Spirit, you're not doing anything in your life that's quenching the Spirit. Um, I, I am careful to tell people um, that we need to be sure that we've let the Lord speak to our hearts. So, Take the time, examine your heart. If repentance is necessary, First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when we do that, Timothy, uh, we are fine, we are good. It doesn't matter um, um, what the enemy's telling you. It doesn't matter whether you feel forgiven. If you're genuine, genuinely repentant, not just sorry that you did it or sorry you got caught, but you're genuinely repentant. God wants you to come to the table, and the table is the answer for guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1 says. Well, neither is there any condemnation for any man or woman who has honestly said to the Lord, um, I know what I was doing. I shouldn't have done it. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, and then you're perfect again. Again, we're going to work out that perfection in this process called sanctification. But from God's perspective, um, he's delighted that you're back at the table. Now, one problem, Timothy, and you didn't ask this. I'm sure it's not the case with you, just kind of hearing the tone of your question. Um, there are people who only ask for forgiveness on communion Sundays. That's certainly not what God intends. It's not like, okay, I'm going to take communion, everything's going to be okay, and then I can go back and start sinning again. Um, the, the table of the Lord is not a table for unbelievers. And that's another thing that I make sure to, to pronounce every communion Sunday. I say that communion is a family celebration. You remember, Timothy, that in the upper room, uh, when Jesus uh, instituted um the, the the bread and the and the wine for us and for the, us the the juice. Um, Judas was there for the bread. It was at the beginning of the meal at the at the what we call the Last Supper. There was uh, a good deal of time that would have gone between the bread and the and the wine. Uh, we always do it one right after the other, but that's not the way Jesus did it. Um, so uh, Judas was there. Uh, Judas heard Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. He, he might as well have said, Judas, I'm, I'm going to take your pain. I'm going to suffer the punishment for your sins. Isaiah 53 says the, 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 uh, the peace that, that we have in Christ um, was put on him. He was punished so that we could have that peace with God. But then Judas had to leave. You remember what you do do quickly, Jesus told him. And he had to go, and he betrayed him. And uh, it was after Judas left that he lifted the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood, establishing uh, an entirely new way of dealing with mankind. It's what we call the, the dispensation of grace. So um, it's a family celebration. It's not meant for unbelievers. It's also not meant... Um, Paul is clear to point out for those who are going to continue in willful sin and just go through the motions. One of the problems with communion, anything that we do frequently inside the church, we tend to take for granted. And this is the one thing that Paul said it's dangerous for us to take it unworthily. So, Timothy, that's all we have to do. 
hope that answers your question. 340-9585. Here is that question from Adam that I could spend the entire hour on. I won't, but uh, I so love this question. Uh, He says, I'm puzzled. What should I be learning from Psalm 88? Uh, I have read this psalm a few times over uh, and again, and I still come to the same conclusion that this is a desperate cry for help without resolve. In it, I read suffering. I read suffering and attempt at restitution without success. My question is, is God teaching us a lesson of what it would feel like or how it feels when we walk away from him, even for a moment, how it would feel to be separated from him? If not, then what could I be missing in the passage? Adam, with the Psalms especially, you have to remember um, very clearly that um, these are they're, they're poems put to music. Um, this isn't something we make doctrine out of. Um, these Psalms help people in, in the deepest, darkest periods of their lives. I actually had a good friend who uh, was out running one day and suffered a stroke, and he was um, um, unable to communicate. He actually lost the vision in one eye uh, as a result of it. But he was in the hospital, and he was sort of in a coma for uh, about four days. And his backslidden son was with him uh, at the hospital, and just hoping uh, for a chance to reconcile with his dad. This dad is a pastor. Um, um, hoping for a chance to reconcile, sorry. And in the whole four days that he was there waiting for his dad to wake up, uh, his dad was quoting Psalms. He'd so hidden Psalms in his heart, he was quoting Psalms. And it so moved on the heart of his son that when he woke up, there was a great reconciliation, repentance. His son is now a pastor of a Calvary Chapel in San Jose, California. So it really worked out well. But um, these Psalms are for comfort. These Psalms are for instruction. I don't think there's a lot that you can benefit from in the psalm in terms of application uh, until you're in that place. Now, one of the things that you can't miss uh, when you read this psalm is that it seems to perfectly describe the book of Job. Um, This is a desperate, desperate psalm. You've picked it right. Uh, He's in this place. Uh, The author is where... Um, there seems to be no answer. There's no reasons that are given to him for his suffering. He is in the throes of death. He's in such a critical condition. He says during the course of the body of the psalm that uh, his friends are deserting him. He's he's preparing for death. And uh, it's a very, very bleak, perhaps the single saddest psalm in all of Scripture. Now, it has been thought by some. James Montgomery Boyce um, was a reformed guy, but great Bible teacher. Um, He believed that the author of this psalm is the one who penned the book of Job. We know Job didn't write it. It was about Job's, but but they would have been contemporaries, uh, or at least that's what he assumed. I'm not so sure that they could have been contemporaries, but the style is exactly the same. Now, the author of the psalm is a man named Heman, uh, he's an Ezraite. He is a son of Kohath. Um, they were gifted, gifted musicians and singers, and they wrote some of the songs. Um, Psalm uh, 53 also mentions the instrument, the Mahalath, um, that uh, is a musical instrument upon which the song was composed. Um, and it's a psalm that is better understood as instruction. Now, why we need instruction, Adam, is because... Until we get to this desperate place, we don't understand what it's going to be like. So these are one of the psalms that you read and you just sort of file away in your heart. Um, there are many mentions of this Hermon in the days of David and Solomon. Uh, it's almost universally assumed that they're, they're referencing the same man. So we can begin with this psalm by saying that um, there was resolution. Uh, he didn't get his answer uh, in, in the course of the psalm, in the middle of his suffering. But we know that he recovered, and he was noted for a lot of really great things. He was noted for his great wisdom in First Kings 4. 
Um, he was among the songs, sons of Korah from First Chronicles chapter 6. Um, his musical ability and service in the temple is noted um, many, many different times in First and Second Chronicles. Uh, he had um, many sons, and they are described as exceptional sons in First Chronicles chapter 25. And his service to the king, also in First Chronicles chapter 25, is lauded. So um, this was a man who had a future, even though at this moment of despair, he didn't feel like he did. And what he's doing in this psalm, he's just making sort of a, a, a tour of his life. And he's writing down all the dark places through which he's traveled. Uh, he mentions his sins. There's reason to believe that the condition he was in was a result of sin. And his hopes um, yet lied in the Lord. In fact, the very first verse, O, o Lord, God of my salvation. He, he knew he was a man who belonged to God. So even in this entire sad psalm, he doesn't charge God foolishly like Job's friends did, and Job eventually came to. Um, uh, he knows that he belongs to God. Now, something else we have to remember, Adam, about this psalm, and I just said I'm not going to go for the whole hour on this pro- on this question, but I, <laughs> this psalm is so instructive, I could. Um, through this whole thing, he never lost faith in God. This wasn't a crisis of unbelief. Uh, this was just a crisis of of pain. He was in deep, deep, deep physical despair, so much so that he uh, really believed that he was going to die. So he's asking for the prayer to come before God. I've cried out to you. I keep crying out to you. My soul is full of troubles. Um, this, this wasn't just superficial agony. It was deep to the soul. It was a bitterness of the soul. Uh, as I said, it threatened his physical life. Um, again, just like reading the book of Job. Um, he felt, as I said, he was about to die. Um, he felt like God had forgotten him because God wasn't answering his prayers. We all feel like that at some particular time. Uh, he said that you've laid me in the lowest pit. Uh, he's not blaming God, but he's just explaining in the song what, what he feels and, uh, and what he's experiencing. That God himself has caused the downfall, um, putting him in the darkness, um, but but it's it's as though it's his fault. It's the writer's fault. Um, so he lays the source of his afflictions at the righteous wrath of God. Um, the good thing, probably the reason he was so noted when he recovered from this, uh, he had a deep sense, a desperate understanding of his own sinfulness. Um, he could feel himself shrinking under the waves of God, and yet he didn't protest that God's wrath was unfair, not through any of it. So he had faith. This wasn't a crisis of faith. This was just one of those things that um, th- there seemed to be no explanation, though he believed that he was um, responsible. There was some sin in his life. Um so he just prayed, and that's all it, all it is. Um, one thing that we have to understand as we read the Psalms um, is that, uh, also with the same is true with Proverbs, Jews didn't have the sense of an afterlife that we do. Um, you know, there was no cross, there's no New Testament, there's no resurrection, no empty tomb. And so there was no promise. You know, we've been given the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, Adam. But but Jews had no such comfort. They talk about going down to the pit or going down to the grave. They, they Their hope was in the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but they really didn't know for sure what was going to happen. And uh, what we have here is a, a, a man who was on the verge of death, fearing with every ounce of his being what lie ahead for him. Now, I've been with people, Adam, on their deathbed who weren't saved. And you can see the terror. You either see terror, you see such a hardness of heart that there's no hope. But this, this guy could hope for the best, but he didn't know. 
And the truth is, there's always that tension, but even for Christians, and we know because Jesus rose from the dead, there's always this tension about wanting to be with Jesus and yet wanting to be delivered from death. And so that's what this psalm really is all about. Um, Begged in the middle of this psalm for God to break his silence. Um, He prays morning, noon, and night. He asks the questions we all ask when we're going through something really difficult. Why have you hid your face from me? Uh, and then he just asks to be rescued at the end of the psalm. And um, so I, I think what we learn from that is it's sort of the same lesson we learned from the book of Job. And maybe to a lesser degree, but I think an important one to note, is um, he was honest with God about his own sinfulness. I would read this with Psalm 51, Adam. Um, If these two psalms don't force us to really examine our hearts, then I I don't know what would. So, great psalm, great question. Uh, I hope that helps you a little bit. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from... Robert from our mobile app. Uh, He says, In the early days of the church, Paul mentions that believers in Jesus were meeting on the Sabbath. When did the world's Christians start gathering and worshiping on the first day of the week? Or does it say in Scripture that man can start worshiping on the first day of the week? Robert, a couple of things that you have to really understand about this. Nobody except Jews, God's people, were instructed to worship on the Sabbath. That's the one thing that I, I don't know why we have a hard time reading it. Just the, the, the simplest, um, um, clear understanding of the text is the commandments were given to the Jews. They were not given to anybody else. God didn't go to the um, Perizzites and the Hivites and the Amalekites and all the otherites. He didn't go to them and say they need to worship on the Sabbath. He told his own people, the Jews. When Jesus gave us a new covenant, the Old Covenant was canceled. The Old Covenant that included Sabbath worship. Why? Because Hebrews says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Additionally, Robert, the early, early church was exclusively Jewish until we get to Acts chapter 10, which is some years into um, the, the, the history of the church, maybe 11 to 15 years into the history of the church. Uh, it was exclusively Jewish. And so the Jewish customs would continue. They would go to the Sabbath. It also says repeatedly that Paul went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. But remember, he was going. Read Acts chapter 13. I just finished preparing my study, although we won't be in Acts chapter 13 for a few weeks. Uh, I just finished preparing the study in Acts chapter 13. Uh, He started in the synagogue because that's where he expected a crowd to be gathered. You remember that Jesus said to go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And that was Paul's ministry. So every town he went into, he would gather either at the river, if there was a small number of Jews, less than 10, they would meet at rivers, uh, bodies of water. If, uh, if there was more than 10, then there would be a synagogue. And he would go there. But he was going there not to worship God in a traditional Jewish sense. He was going there to win the hearts of Jews. Again, Acts chapter 13 is very instructive because lots of them got saved. The following Sabbath, the whole city came out because they were curious about what God had done in the lives of those people and the things that they were hearing for the first time. So um, uh, the book of Acts doesn't say that they met, that the Christians met on the Sabbath. When we get to Acts chapter 15, we find the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, still maintaining not only Sabbath worship, but also insisting that converts to Christianity basically had to become Jewish. Um, And Paul withstands Peter the face at the Council of Jerusalem. He takes a stand for not putting people under a yoke of of slavery. Um, The council meets, led by the Holy Spirit. They all understand and agree, and they just decide on a a couple of rules. No sexual immorality, don't eat blood with meat. Uh, Other than that, then go be blessed. So the early church, once it became uh, populated with Samaritans and then with Gentiles, uh, the tradition was always to meet on the first day of the week. Um, 
You can read about it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. They talk about meeting on the first day of the week. So it was done to celebrate a new covenant on the first day of the week, the number of, of uh, uh, the first day of the week would be the number eight, seventh is the, the, the Sabbath day. The first day of the week would be the eighth day in that context. Uh, it's the number of new beginnings, and they celebrated the day that Christ rose from the dead. So that's when they changed it. There is no single place in the New Testament where we're told to worship on the Sabbath or uh, that indicates that there was any Sabbath worship in the early church once it started to include non-Jews. So, Robert, I hope that answers your question. You know, we get into arguments. And by the way, we should never get into arguments with anybody. But um, um, we get into arguments with, with people about, well, God never abolished Sabbath worship. He did. When Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood, we were released from the confines of the old covenant um, and gloriously we get to celebrate uh, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that's why we celebrate on the first day of the week so we're not under law remember Hebrews says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest the Sabbath was nothing more than a picture of the one to come who would give us rest by giving us peace with God. All you got to do is make peace with God, and then you'll have the peace of God. Robert, thanks for the question. We have 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. You're listening to The Word to Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. Because it's Tuesday, we get right to questions. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Billy. Billy wants to know, what is the difference between exegetic preaching and isogetic preaching? Um, good words. Thanks for using them, Billy. Uh, exegesis or exegesis is um, reading a passage of Scripture and pulling out from that passage of Scripture what it says. Isogetic preaching is taking the passage of Scripture and inserting things in. So when we are uh, exegeting the scriptures, we're, we're just we're we're reading it, we're explaining it, but we're taking out from what's in. We're not adding anything. Eisegesis is just the opposite. We're reading it and we're superimposing our ideas or our thoughts. You know, Billy, you've heard people say, "Well, to me, this passage means." Well, that's eisegesis. It, we don't care what it means to you. Exegesis is understanding that the only value in our scriptures is understanding what the author intended to say. Now, don't misunderstand. The word is living and active. Uh, it meets us where we are, but that doesn't mean that we can take a, con- a passage out of context and say, well, God just spoke to me and, and said this. So he can speak to you in the scriptures. He can take something that's kind of obscure and very and, and very much personalize it. But if you want to declare the meaning of the text, you have to exegete that text. Uh, What I do here at Calvary Chapel, Bill, I'll just give an example, is I look at the text for three things. I want to know what it says. That's the most important thing. I have to become familiar with the text. So I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read it over and over. I'm going to get familiar with it. Uh, and, And just I want to have a clear understanding of what's being said. The next way I want to view that is, what does it mean? If I'm going to exegete it properly, I have to be able to explain, this is what it says, and this is what it means. Um, As a Bible teacher, you want people to understand what the Bible says, not just get in the habit of repeating verses. So, what it says, and then what it means. The third way is how we can apply it into our life. Not what it means to me but how we can apply it in our lives. There's always a practical application in every passage of Scripture. 
So when we're exegeting the passage, people should leave with an understanding of not only what it says, but what it means. But my goal is that when they leave the church that, that day, the, the, the day of the Bible study, that they can go home and start applying it, using what they learned that very day in order to transform their lives. So uh, the only way we can do that is with exegesis, uh, taking out of the passage of Scripture from what's there. When we start reading in, well, then we've done nothing, Billy, more than give our opinion about something or telling somebody, well, we think we can apply it like this or we think it means this. But you, you, we just don't, as Christians, have the freedom to do that. So I hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls. Here is a question from Jennifer. She says, should the title of reverend be given in a church? Um, I don't believe it should. Um, Jennifer, I've talked about this before. Uh, I actually occasionally people call me reverend and I feel like Paul and Silas, you know, tearing my robes because no, 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 there's only one reverend, only God. Uh, and yet culturally... We have to understand that most people who uh, receive the title of reverend um, don't really think of themselves as rather in reverend. Um, but but I just personally believe it's a title that no man deserves. Uh, only Jesus. Uh, truth about all of us, whether we're Bible teachers or not, is we are not very reverend at all. And and I think it slights uh, slights the Lord. Again, I, I I'm, don't get hostile about it or anything because. I understand that most people, when they call me reverend, um, you know, they're just trying to be respectful. But I believe that I owe it to them to explain that, no, 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 you can call me pastor on, that's what I do, it's who I am, but don't call me reverend because uh, only Jesus is. And I think when we have that kind of humility, we have an understanding of uh, how inadequate we are. And, and accepting the title reverend uh, somehow seems to just um, reinforce the idea that we can be better or more than we are. So, Jennifer, I hope that helps. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here is a question that just came in to um, the, from our email inbox from Nacho. Uh, with racism as a sad focal point in today's society, which is especially poignant here in the United States. It's interesting to see Paul's point of factions in Galatians 5.20. Obviously, racism was seen in a whole different light in his day than in ours. However, like him, can we use this passage to battle, admonish, or rebuke a racist attitude today? Yeah, we can, Nacho. In fact, this is something that uh, we who are believers ought to do every day. We really need to examine our hearts towards other people. Um, when we talk about there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave nor free, no male or female, because we're all one in Christ, he's not denying the distinctions in people's lives. But what he's denying is that that some people have less value in the eyes of God, and if they have less value, in the, if they don't have less value in the eyes of God, then we can't hold them uh, in a place of, of lower value in our eyes as well. I say this at Calvary Chapel all the time, Nacho. You cannot be a Christian and hold on to prejudices. Now, prejudices is in large part uh, what happens to us as we grow up relative to the environment that we've grown up in. We come to have biases. We come uh, to to listen to uh, the portrayals of people. Uh, my father was a racist. That's how he was raised. Um, that's why he disowned me when um, I met Paul, and obviously we were in love, and we were planning on uh, on making a life together. But my dad was a believer until the day he died. I tell Christians all the time that we simply cannot have any racist attitudes. We have to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. I challenge my church all the time that if, in fact, they still hold prejudices against groups of people, then they need to repent. And I suggest to them, and I suggest very strongly to them, Nacho, that 
if they're unwilling to do that, then, then what makes them think that they're saved? So it's really, really important. Now, let me also say this, relative to this whole idea of how popular it is to call everybody racist. Um, not every white person is a racist. Uh, racism expands all categories of people. It just can't be said that a Christian is a racist. So if there is, repent, take those thoughts captive, and keep remembering over and over and over that from God's perspective, there's only two races of people, two groups, saved and unsaved. If you're in the saved group, you're all going to heaven. If you're in the unsaved group, you're going to hell. That's the only distinction God makes in terms of people. One other thing that I'll say about this, when you go to church, especially in San Antonio, because we live in a pretty mixed cultural city, um, and I can't say this about every church because I only go to one church, my church, and, and, and yet when I look out into the audience that I'm speaking to, um, our church is really a great picture of our city. Um, our Hispanic percentage of, of people is the same as the city, about 60%. Um, we probably have a slightly smaller Caucasian percentage. Uh, we have a, a larger African-American percentage than, than our city represents. But the mixture of people is amazing. The diversity is amazing. That's what heaven is going to look like, and that's what our churches should look like. I personally think if you're going to church that is all white or a church that's all black or all Hispanic, now the only exception is with language difficulties, language barriers. But if you're going to church that, that is predominantly one race of people, then you're getting ripped off. And the church needs to sort of evaluate what they're doing to keep people away. You know, I teach the Word, Nacho, and open my Bible, we start... Sunday where we left off last Sunday and God brings people from every background from every economic background they hear the word they get saved they become part of the family and that's the way church ought to look in this 21st century church age that we live in here is David on line one David thanks for calling you're on the air Hi, Pastor Ron. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I'm not sure if this was a, it was a question earlier this week or, or how we this came about, but I heard uh, during the conversation um, it was about the thousand-year reign, and uh, you made a comment about uh, and, and if I if I get this wrong, I apologize. It's just the way I remember it um, <laughs> that there would be marriages and births, uh, say children born during the thousand-year reign, number one. And I'm, I'm sorry, but I kind of have the Berean-type spirit where I, I want to make sure I heard what I heard and, and look it up. So I'm not sure where you got that from. And then um, number two, um, you made the comment that, and, and I, I know this is a revelation, but I, I don't know how, it just really boggles my mind when I heard this. Uh, you said that uh, after the thousand years that, the devil would be released, um, that some people would, would say, I, uh, for lack of a better term, lose their salvation because they would, they would give in to sin. So I would, I would like to know if you could address that, because that, that second one really bugged me. Yeah, it would, it would bug me, too. I, 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 I should have been more clear, David. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to make sure you understand. I, I have never said that anybody would lose their salvation. I think the assumption you're making, David, is that anybody and everybody who is alive in a physical body, flesh and blood body, the kind of body you have and I have, um, we make the assumption that if they're in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, they're, that they're going to be saved. That's not true. Uh, once Jesus returns for the thousand-year reign on earth, remember, we're going to come with him. You and I, we'll be taken to heaven to be with him for a period of seven years during the Great Tribulation. That'll be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, but we'll be in our glorified 
physical but glorified resurrected bodies. When we come back with Jesus in Revelation chapter 19, um, um, we'll be with him in our glorified bodies. We'll rule and reign with him. You can read Isaiah uh, from chapter 60 through the end of the prophecy. And it gives us most the most information about the millennial reign of Christ uh, on earth th- than any other book does. But we will be ruling and reigning with Christ over people who are in their physical bodies. So what that means is that there's going to be a, a lot of people, um, perhaps a third, no, that's too much, a fourth of the world uh, is going to uh, survive the Great Tribulation. Um, Jesus is going to uh, usher in the Millennial Kingdom. They will be his subjects. And they will be forced, as he rules with an iron rod, an iron scepter, uh, they will be forced to, to, to serve him. Um, we know that it will be perfect justice, a perfect environment, um, but, but people who uh, are born in their flesh and blood bodies are still in their flesh and blood bodies. Um, it doesn't mean that when they enter the, the, the um, millennial reign that they have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It just means he's their king, uh, a potentate of sorts. So um, they will be in their flesh and blood bodies. The reason the devil is going to be let loose at the end of the thousand years is because all of those people born during the Great Tribulation, uh, I'm sorry, during the millennial reign, all of those people uh, will have been forced, compelled by Jesus to serve him. Well, Jesus never compels anybody to do anything for eternity. He gives them the choice, and the enemy is going to be let loose to deceive the people. And the numbers of people that that were told are deceived by the enemy before the great white throne judgment uh, are like the numbers of sand, the grains of sand on the seashores. It's just a very Jewish way of saying lots and lots of people. They're going to be the ones cast into the lake of fire. Uh, It doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. It means that they never, of their own free will, made a choice to serve God. And the moment they had to make that choice, they chose to do otherwise. Remember, no one can lose your salvation because God gives it to you and he guarantees it. He gives us his spirit, Ephesians 1 says, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Go ahead. So so I, I understand you better then. So you're saying that, you're saying that the word says that once you receive your salvation, say, here and now, you don't lose that. Because I was thinking, oh my gosh, there's a second temptation I'm going to have no. to go through, and, no, and absolutely not. I feel like a I feel like a ping pong ball. You know, it's like it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, if he's the author and the finisher of our faith, um, he wouldn't be a very good finisher if we could we could we could lose it somehow. Right. So right. so no, we're talking about two different groups of people. When we return with him, we're going to be in a position where we're in our glorified, resurrected bodies, and we're going to rule and reign with Jesus. But we're actually going to be ruling over people who are uh, in their flesh and blood bodies. They're they're humans, just the way you and I are human now. Uh, and and they're going to die. Uh, Isaiah says that an infant will die at the age of a hundred. The idea is that most people are going to live through the whole thousand years in a redeemed millennial kingdom. Um, but uh, people are going to be marrying one another. Um, life is going to go on as as it goes on on Earth. It'll just be under a perfect and just system because we have a perfect and just King. Um, but but again, because those people never had a choice, the enemy's going to be let loose from his dungeon. Uh, he's going to deceive the people, and then there'll be the separating of those who are his, uh, those who choose of their own free will to, to spend forever with Jesus, and those who choose to live separate from Jesus. We can't lose our salvation at all. Uh, the people that are getting married and having children, Imagine the the multiplied billions and billions of people that that would would be produced in a perfect environment, not Garden of Eden perfect, but as close as you can get, and and so the the population of Earth will be enormous. Um, but that's not speaking of us. We won't be married because we'll be married to Jesus. Uh, we'll be in our glorified bodies. But those on earth, life will go on. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60 through the end of the book tells us more about the millennial kingdom than anything. And I think purposely, David, there's a whole bunch of details left out. 
because these are the things that God wants us to trust. I have no idea what ruling and reigning with Jesus means. I, I have an idea that, that we're going to be his, his um, uh, instruments to execute justice and judgment. If somebody rebels, they'll, they'll pay with their life during that time um, and we'll be the ones who execute justice. Um, but we'll be in our glorified bodies. So there's, once you're in heaven, once you're in the family, you don't have to worry about it at all. Okay, thank help? you, Pastor Ron, for clarifying. Yes, thank you. Okay, David, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Three four zero. I must. I, I, there's something deficient about the way I, I explained that, because last week the question, uh, the the questioner then was was uh, a little bit confused as well. So I'm going to try to do better. Thanks very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question anonymously. Um, what does the day of the Lord refer to? Uh, the day of the Lord Anonymous refers always and only to the day he returns. Revelation chapter 19, he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. He destroys his enemies with the word, and he begins the process of establishing his kingdom. That is always what the day of the Lord refers to. So it's not the rapture of the church. It's not the great white throne judgment that comes at the end of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. It is when he comes to reestablish control over a world that has rejected him, a world that's been uh, torn apart by sin, by evil, by an enemy. Um, so the day of the Lord, singular, is always that day. It means nothing else. And a lot of people get confused. They confuse that with a rapture. Uh, Jesus has come to earth once. He's going to come only one more time. The rapture of the church happens in between those two. Um, appearances of Jesus on earth. Uh, and But he's not coming to earth to get us. He's going to come and we're going to be caught up to be together with him in the air. So he's only coming to earth twice. The second coming is the day of the Lord. It is the day the Hebrew scriptures refer to as the day of judgment, uh, the time of Jacob's distress, um, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Um, all of the Jewish prophets spoke about it, but it is the day when he comes to set things right on this world. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Wes, oops, what we got before Wes's? We've got Troy calling on line one. Troy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Troy. Hi, Troy. Hey, uh, thanks. Thanks for your prayers and everything um, yesterday. Um, everything is. It's going really well, so I just want to say thank you uh, for your prayers on that. Um, but my question is kind of uh, revolving about the topic we were just talking about, and I just want to make sure mm -hmm. that I, I've got it kind of clear. Um, so after the or when Satan is released, he's going to deceive many and go to the northwest, east, and kind of build an army that's going to come and try to dethrone Jesus. And that's when God himself and Jesus, they throw the the fireballs down from heaven and they destroy their enemies. Immediately after that happens, is that when the a thousand years is up and it will go straight to the great white throne judgment and then the new heaven and new earth, if I have it correct? Okay, no, Troy, you, you do not have that correct. Uh, let me make this as clear as I possibly can. When, uh, during the great tribulation, that's when we see all of those things, that, the things that you read about in the prophecy of Joel, the prophecy of of Isaiah, the prophecy, virtually all the prophets, Zechariah and many of the others. Uh, the, those judgments, the, the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the vile judgments, uh, those judgments are going to happen during the seven years of the Great Tribulation while we're in heaven with Jesus. When he comes back in Revelation chapter 19, uh, he's going to destroy his enemies and he's going to set up his kingdom. Now, for a thousand years, he's going to rule with perfect justice. At the end of the thousand years, all of the people who were born during the millennial reign of Christ on earth, who were forced to serve Jesus, they were forced to uh, submit to his rules, his, his laws, um, they're the ones who are going to be deceived by the enemy. So when the enemy's let loose, the, the description of the time frame, it's for a short period of time, uh, he's going to do his evil work, people are going to be deceived, and right then and there is going to be the great white throne judgment. So go to Revelation chapter 20, you can read about the great white throne judgment, 
And that's when Jesus sort of interrupts the rebellion. They're not going to try to make war against him. They're going to do that uh, in Revelation chapter 19 before he comes back. His enemies, uh, sort of the, the Antichrist uh, and those who follow him and the armies that come from the east, those 200 million men armies, they're going to come together in the valley of, of uh, Megiddo. We call it for, for Armageddon. They're going to make war against each other. Jesus can return, and then they're going to turn their weaponry on Jesus. Those are the people that he's going to destroy. But that's at the end of the seven years, and then we're going to enter a time of peace for a thousand years. And that thousand years is only going to be interrupted for a very, very short time at the end so that people will make a choice. And when everybody who's made the choice, and this will happen very quickly, when everybody who's made the choice makes it, then they're instantly going to be thrown into judgment at the great white throne judgment. So no more um, war against God. Uh, Once they rebel, there's not going to be any plots to overthrow Jesus, anything like that. God is going to step in decisively and suddenly, uh, and that's when the great white throne judgment. Now, one thing about the, the lake of fire, everybody who is at the great white throne judgment, it's a second death, it's called, um, when they get thrown in, they're going to find that the man that we call the Antichrist and the man that, that is identified as the false prophet of Revelation, they're the only two people that are going to have been in the, the, the lake of fire. They're going to have been there for a thousand years. They're still going to be alive in a, in a sense that they're, they're conscious in, in, in an eternal state, but it's eternal torment. And then the rest of those who reject Jesus are going to join them there. So for a thousand years, just two people in the great in the in the lake of fire. After that, then all of the people who've rejected Jesus throughout history are going to be thrown in the lake of fire. And then a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to be with Jesus forever. Troy, thanks for calling. Let me know that things are going well. Thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, all we want to do is help you understand just how much God loves you and know your value. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back here on the air at 4 o'clock tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.